Hi, I'm Johnny Kay. I'm the director of The Oath, a Batman fan film, and you are watching superhero stuff you should know. Welcome back to Superhero Stuff You Should Know. As usual, this is Ben, the man who knows too much about Batman. And with me, as usual, is... Oath Drew. I'm ready. Sorry for the break. We're back. Yes, it's our debut episode for 2023, and we have a guest with us. We said last year was the year of Michael Keaton's return, and then The Flash got delayed and Batgirl got canceled. So now this is the year of Michael Keaton's return, and to help bring that in is... Uh, Johnny K from Chaotica Studios, who wrote and directed the Batman 89 prequel film called The Oath, a Batman fan film. Welcome, Johnny. Well, thank you, guys. Longtime listeners love to. I feel like I know you already. So, <laughs> so how did you discover us? Uh, I actually found you relatively recently through uh, Carl Newman, uh, Bat, you know, oh. Michael Keaton's uh, movement double in Batman 89. Carl and I got to know each other, and uh, I was actually on a long road trip and i thought you know let me just pull up an interview of, of carl and I, I think i just googled his name and you guys were the first to yes. pop up and uh after that i found out you'd interviewed sam ham and some other kind of you know personal heroes of mine so i've spent some time with you guys on long drives before you didn't know it but <laughs> <laughs> this is how we find out that's awesome so uh yes johnny is joining us as we discuss the oath of batman fan film and along those lines discussing the secret origin of michael keaton's batman so we're going to be kind of going into a little bit about Johnny and his Batman fandom, going into a little bit of the timeline of Michael Keaton's backstory, as well as sort of the lead up to The Oath. And then uh, the break is when we'll give you guys an opportunity to go check out The Oath if you haven't already on YouTube before coming back for some uh, spoilery, uh, spoiler, spoilerly. Wow, I lost the ability to talk over the break. Uh, discussion on The Oath when we come back. So uh, let's go into it. So. Uh, let's start with uh, Andrew's question. Okay, so Batman 89 was a huge part of your Bat fandom. Can you tell us about your experience watching the film for the first time? Yeah, uh, full disclosure, I was nine years old in 1989, and I uh, personally felt like Batman was made for me. Uh, <laughs> probably, like, maybe outside of, like, Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage, you know, breaking up their tag team. <laughs> I think Batman 89 was probably the, like the single biggest thing that had happened to me in my life uh, that summer. So I was there like opening weekend. I can't remember if I was there opening night, but it was definitely opening weekend. And uh, I'm from a small town in, in Tennessee. And when I saw the movie in the theater, I remember it being so crowded. It was the first uh, sellout show I'd ever seen in the theater where I had to sit next to a complete stranger. And I was completely uh, weirded out, you know, by this guy who's right beside me and he's giving commentary all through the movie. And I'm just <laughs> like, this is so different than, you know, seeing a movie that's not a big blockbuster. But yeah, I was I was hooked, um, you know, right away. And obviously I had all the the merch, the Batman pajamas and the cereal and the caps and the socks and the, you know, whatever nine year old kids had all the toys. So, I mean, I was all in that logo. Like, you know, if a box of Tic Tacs had that logo on it. Like I would buy a <laughs> I had to have it. Had to have it. That was the Batmania at the time. You know, like everything was Batman. I don't think we've ever seen that since, you know, not to that level. I don't really? Think, I don't think so. I mean, what? Uh, you don't see that with like Avengers. I don't have like Avengers cereal. Oh, you mean as far as the people getting all the merch? Just, just the spectacle of it. Just how big that was. It's like, I think we get 
too many of those big movies now. Like 89 was really, really special. That was like a big event and it happened right in the middle of the summer. It, I don't know. It just seems like we get more and more of those now and they don't maybe quite seem as special because it's we get one some... every month. It yeah. feels like at this point. I remember first time, first movie that I noticed people were like lined up for to go into like, like uh, they'd already bought their ticket, but they were lined up to go into the actual theater door was Independence Day. That was like the first, and I'm, I'm a, a, just slightly younger than you. And I, w- I just remember thinking like, wow, this is a huge film. So I wonder if Batman, Batman in 89 was probably even, even more than that. It was, it was big. And the mall that I saw it in, like, I remember the shop owners or managers like coming out into the hallway and yelling at people in the mall because the line was blocking the entrances to their stores. So whatever <laughs> it was, like the managers were yelling at people. And then I don't know, maybe the next big movie after that was, I don't know, maybe Jurassic Park or maybe, I don't know, maybe even Batman Returns. But I remember by then, like the, the shop owners had figured out a system where you no longer block the uh, entrance. But Batman, there were some irate like shop managers in the mall because their stores were getting blocked on a Friday night. But nobody was there shopping. They were there for Batman. <laughs> right. That's awesome. Do you happen to remember the guy's commentary next to you? Was it like a positive, like, oh my God, they got it right? Or was it less like, what the hell is this type of thing? Like this was- is I'm not I'm not even bullshitting you. This is hundred percent true. The only thing I specifically remember him saying is it's the scene where uh, Knox and Vicky Vale are in the armory and, you know, Knox says, you know, who is this guy, Bruce Vane? And then it cuts to the other side of the mirror where it shows the surveillance camera looking at him. And I remember the stranger right beside me going, oh, a surveillance camera. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I don't really recall any comments on the Batmobile or the Batwing or the Joker. Yeah, He was pretty impressed by the surveillance camera and what (laughs) That true story. I remember him specifically like talking about that. Wow. He had a weird cologne too. I remember he had a real overpowering. um, Yeah. I'm like, I'm blind and I'm deaf basically. Not for real. (laughs) But like I have poor eyesight and poor hearing, but I was about to say, how'd you make this movie? If you're, if you're blind. Yeah. Wow. But because of those two things, I I can smell like I have like Wolverine smelling power. So I can smell remember the dude's cologne it was just so strong and overpowering i don't we kind of diverged off my batman fandom onto that guy's cologne (laughs) no that's that's cool though yeah i i feel like like toys and stuff like i wonder if kids are as into avengers toys and stuff now as much as kids were into batman merch back then just seems like it's just not the same plus kids probably grow out of toys much quicker these days because of ipads and video games and stuff yeah there's a saturation too you know when there's yeah. like so many different ones like you can go now and there's just like a, there's just a ton of batman action figures you can choose from that are like comic related video game related movie related right like all sorts of stuff it's just not as doesn't feel special compared to what must have been around back then right back, we had three action figures back then we had batman <laughs> we had the joker and we had bob the goon <laughs> that was it for the year <laughs> that was it and bob bob got the hell beat out of him oh i'm sure yeah. <laughs> oh man amazing uh so we're going to do kind of a small deep dive into the sort of origin stories of the michael keaton version of uh bruce wayne this sort of takes the movies into account as well as some information from the original scripts 
the novelization, the Batman 89 comic from Sam Hamm and Joe Quinones that sort of canonized some of Hamm's original ideas into sort of uh, kind of create a comprehensive timeline for our viewers and listeners leading up to the oath and then Batman 89. So, uh, First off, Bruce Wayne, as usual, grows up in Wayne Manor with Thomas and Martha Wayne as his parents and Alfred as his butler. At one point, Alfred does attempt to give Bruce a riding lesson in riding horses, but Bruce ends up falling into the mud and spraining his ankle, as Alfred relays to Vicky at one point in 89. Um, now, something that's not in the movies, but has been kind of canonized into the comic is the fact that at some point during childhood, Bruce Wayne, like his successors, uh, as other succeeding Bruce Waynes, fell into the Batcave and discovered bats. This idea comes from The Dark Knight Returns, but carries over into Sam Hamm's 1986 draft, where Vicky asks, how'd you find this place? And Batman says, stumbled across it when I was a boy. So that was kind of in the DNA there before we ended up seeing that in Batman Forever, and Batman Begins, and opening of Batman versus Superman. Uh, and uh, it's sort of ca canonized in the 89 comic series, where Bruce tells Drake that the cave was there all along. He just kind of, quote unquote, fixed it up a little. So uh, how exactly he did that, we don't know. Some of it is a mystery, which is fine, because I think uh, a lot of the appeal to the Keaton version is the the mystery element of that, uh, as I'm sure you'll agree, Johnny. Yeah, it's sometimes what you can't see and what you don't know about is more interesting than what you're staring at. Actually, I noticed that in your film, too. You don't reveal a lot of uh, Batman until the very end, which was really great i thought you really treat him like jaws in a sense you know you don't show you don't you don't even see his face till what like very end of it yeah and we tried to keep his face you know out of it we wanted to kind of keep him uh like you said you know the shark and jaws was a was an example that i used all through filming and, and i told guillermo our actor that right up front uh because he is not a professionally trained actor he's a, a costumer and okay. uh, he and i had a talk and and very early on, he was a little concerned about being able to, you know, pull off acting chops. And I said, bro, like you are the shark in Jaws. You are Michael Myers. You're going to be lurking in the shadows. And and, you know, that's just my kind of favorite way to see some of these characters, um, even in Star Wars, like Boba Fett. I always thought Boba Fett mm. was much cooler when you're seeing him through the perspective of somebody else. And um, you know, I don't need to know all that much about Boba Fett. I don't need to know all that much about Judge Dredd. Like I like to see <laughs> these characters through the eyes of, of other people and, and Batman. I mean, there's nothing me as a fan filmmaker, there's nothing I could say about Bruce Wayne and Batman. That's not been said a hundred thousand times. So I kind of wanted to keep him in the background and, you know, things that you can't see are sometimes a little more interesting than what's standing in the spotlight right in front of you. Mm -hmm. So you like that mystery. I love it. I, yeah, yeah. I tried to embrace it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah uh, cool. I think it works very well in the oath. Thank you, man. Uh, so according to the comic, Bruce was part of a family portrait with Thomas and Martha. However, it was unfinished as Martha wanted it to be finished when the azaleas were in bloom outside of Wayne Manor. Unfortunately, before the azaleas were in bloom, the uh, the Waynes had a tragedy, which we all know about because it happens in every universe in the DC universe. Uh, they go out to, in some cases, watch an opera or some cases watch a movie. In this case, it was at the Monarch Theater to see Footlight Frenzy, which is actually, as we've covered before, a live show uh, that uh, existed in real life from Diz White. We discussed in our deeper dive into the Wayne murders episode. But uh, Bruce was carrying out popcorn as they walked out, but they were followed over into the intersection of Pearl and Phillips Streets. 
A lot of the times the murder happens in crime alley. Here, it's not really an alley. It's kind of right out in the open, which I thought was an interesting or even more sometimes terrifying choice when you think about it. Uh, and they are confronted by two men. One is an unnamed mugger played by actor Clyde Gaytel that, as we've discussed before, was open to interpretation by executive producer and former guest Michael Uslan as possibly being Joe Chill, though others speculate that it's a young version of Bob the Goon. I don't know if you have a vote either way, Johnny, on this one. I would. I don't. I don't have a vote. I think I want to stay in the dark on that one and uh, <laughs> and uh, let the imagination play on that. Yeah, you like the mystery once again. I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's a theme. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Either way, some sort of associate with uh, Jack is with them, but really, it is the real gunman here is Jack Napier, played by Hugo Blick in the flashback, and where Jack says to Bruce the famous line, "Tell me, kid." Have you ever danced with the devil by the pale moonlight in that like very slowed down, twisted uh, way? There's there's something haunting about that flashback that I don't think has really been touched in other versions of the the Wayne murders. No matter you know how many times people joke about having it, you know, seeing it for a million times, I think it still hasn't quite matched how haunting it is in the Burton film. Uh, something not in the movie, but also revealed in the scripts is that Bruce is comforted that night by a young officer, Jim Gordon. Uh, this is in the, basically the Sam Ham 86 script, as well as in the, uh, the first printing of the Craig Shaw Gardner novelization, depending on which version you pick up. Uh, but it's also in the Batman 89 comic where Bruce mentions this and it kind of becomes canonized into this universe. And it's also seen in this promotional shot that uh, has been going around. You kind of see this in the newspaper that Bruce looks at in the film, but it's never directly stated in the movie that this is Jim Gordon. Uh, Pat Hingle was aware of this backstory when uh, you listen to him in some of the behind the scenes interviews, but it's not always, you know, I'm, I'm sure that some part of him wanted to play that part of it. It just never ended up happening. Uh, like his comic book counterpart, Bruce presumably decides to seek vengeance and begin his training in his crusade during this time. However, he elects not to have his photograph taken. He decides to keep himself a mystery. Again, hearkening back to Johnny's theme here, keeping himself in the shadows. Uh, maybe it's a way to keep himself private. Maybe there's an association of his parents' death in having his picture all over the news after what happened on the newspaper. But in the original Sam Ham script, uh, the only existing pictures of Bruce are a group shot where he's blocking his face and another one from 1973 when he's in college. Alexander Knox notes that it's weird that he doesn't like his picture taken. And this evolved into kind of just one line from Vicky about how there's like no pictures of Bruce in their file at the uh, Gotham Globe. And uh, it also sort of explains why Knox and Vicky don't know Bruce by sight in 89 or how there's no reporters saying that, oh, Bruce Wayne was seen at City Hall when Joker and a bunch of mimes killed these mobsters. So uh, that's kind of an interesting nuance that's in this world. And is kind of carried over into the 89 comic as well with Sam Hamm having Bruce basically talking about how he hates being photographed and threatening to basically take the film away from the reporters here. Uh, one of my favorite aspects of uh, the sort of hidden clues of the backstories is the armory in 89, where uh, we can kind of presume that he traveled around the world, collected armor from different places where he had training, including Japan. Uh, the place that Knox and Vicky had no idea where it was from and sort of brought it back. And the Topps trading card itself says, quote, these warrior costumes clearly influenced Bruce Wayne when he was designing Batman's distinctive uniform. So uh, we kind of have it. That's as close of a source as we're going to get on this 
is the trading cards here. Uh, inevitably, he ends up returning to Wayne Manor, as illustrated here by our friend and patron Logan Wood, in a variation of the art for Batman Year One. Check him out on Instagram at Shane Helms one two one. But uh, this is basically the panels from Year One, but it's been remixed with Michael Goff's Alfred and uh, Michael Keaton's Bruce Wayne, of course. So uh, Logan's art will feature a little bit more when we kind of do some behind the scenes type stuff in our Patreon feed. But at some point. Bruce Wayne uh, befriends Harvey Dent, as shown in the Batman 89 comic. And it's unknown when this occurred, but since Harvey grew up in Burnside and had to work his way up, it's unlikely their paths crossed until Dent was already in the DA's office. And with Bruce's help, he kind of ends up winning the election to be the top DA by the time Bruce is making his debut as Batman. Um, I take it during the time, you know, as a Keaton Burton fan yourself, or, or maybe during the time of post-production, uh, did you have a chance to check this uh, comic out during sort of post, Johnny? 89. So I started it. I think I got through the first three issues and I was mm -hmm. buying I was buying single issues, you know, as soon as they would hit uh, mm -hmm. the comic store. And then, you know, other stuff picked up. I got away from it. And then I thought, well, I've got the hardback, you know, on pre-order. It's going to show up. So the hardback is here. I've not finished it yet. I'm only three issues in. You guys have given me some great spoilers here so far. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Sorry about that. I'm joking. No, I'm, 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 uh, I've it's all backstory it. stuff. Yeah. The hard, the hard back sitting right over here waiting on me. I got to yeah. dive back into it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but one of my favorite aspects of that is kind of breaking the Harvey Dent, Bruce Wayne friendship into play that Sam Hamm was not able to bring into. I mean, he was able to bring in the script. It just didn't make it into the final movie. And I would have loved to have seen a scene with, Keaton's Bruce and Billy D. Williams's Harvey. So the party at Wayne Manor was meant to be Harvey Dent's DA campaign rather than saving the 200th anniversary festival, uh, but it got changed, of course. And there was a deleted scene with Harvey and Bruce that we've discussed before, where Bruce was advising Harvey on how to deal with the Joker, and it was kind of implied that Harvey may or may not know that Bruce is Batman. Obviously, that didn't end up panning out in the in the actual comic. Uh, but you can check out our interview with Sam Hamm where we kind of discuss that scene. Uh, more art from Logan here of Keaton in a year one setting. But I'd like to think at some point Bruce does attempt to fight crime, but found that he needed an edge just like in year one. And I think that really harkens back to Keaton's casting because the whole reason why Burton said that he wanted to cast Keaton as opposed to somebody who was like an Arnold or Stallone at the time was because it needed to be believable that this guy needed a bat suit to intimidate someone. Otherwise it feels redundant. Uh, and it needed to be some, an actor who could convey the psychology, the tragedy of the character, not necessarily somebody who was just the muscles of the character or just physically intimidating. Uh, so I know Keaton is your favorite Batman, Johnny. Is, are, is that sort of aspect one of the things that you like about the interpretation? For sure. The, uh, the vulnerability there too. Mm -hmm. I heard, I heard Sam Hamm talk about it. You know, I think it was your guys interview with him, you know, that the whole scene in Vicki Vale's apartment where he encounters the Joker and his, the bat suit is nowhere to be found. So Bruce is kind of caught with his pants down, you know, mm -hmm. and he's not comfortable and he's very insecure not being Batman. Um, I think that plays right into what you talked about a second ago where, you know, Bruce doesn't like to be photographed. There's a whole kind of underlying, identity crisis here and uh you know bruce not exactly knowing who he is and because of that he feels more comfortable being somebody else or something else which is batman and mm -hmm. i i think that's something that the keaton films just got perfectly you know and i'm not sure the 
future Batman films, uh, the ones I've seen anyway, have ever really, you know, kind of shown that same vulnerability that Michael Keaton had. And and just like you said, he's not a, you know, Keaton was not a Rambo and he was not a, you know, Stallone and a Schwarzenegger. And he was just a kind of an everyman. And there's just something really interesting about the psychology of Keaton's Bruce Wayne um, that, you know, he's drawn to putting on a costume and going out every night and beating people up. You know, he's got so much money, he could probably dump that money into juvenile justice or like reform programs to help keep crime off the streets. But, you know, he would rather go out and beat people up. I think there's a, there's a part of his psyche that kind of mm-hmm. drives him toward that. And uh, mm-hmm. that's that's always been really, really interesting to me, especially with Keaton. Yeah, I mean, it, it's for this specific interpretation, there hasn't really been a ton of exploration on like what, you know, what his day job is, because Vicky's like, what do you do? And then his line is just completely interrupted. But, you know, going by going by the regular comics, uh, you know, we've kind of had discussions on how like, well, he does do both. You know, he does do, you know, he helps funnel the money into uh, the rest of Gotham and helping out that stuff on top of uh, the Batman stuff. But in, in terms of the Keaton stuff specifically, it hasn't really, you know, they didn't really have much of a chance to explore that, which kind of ties a little bit into one of the aspects that I appreciated about the oath that I will say for the spoiler section. Uh, but basically, at this point, Bruce decides to take the persona of a bat, creating armor made from a material that according to the script and novelization is so new that there's no name for it yet which is pretty cool uh during this time he elects to have a yellow oval symbol around the bat as a target so they don't aim at his head this is not only in the dark knight returns but also carries over from the sam ham script so that then brings us to the first month of batman where he encounters a hoodlum named johnny gobbs who is later found dead after falling from a great height Presume that he, quote, got ripped and walked off a roof, but it's also very likely that he encountered Batman and just fell during the fight. It's ambiguous because we never see it, and that transitions us into right into the opening of the oath where Johnny Gobbs' body is found. So there you are in the timeline, Johnny, for uh, the oath. We have Johnny Gobbs' body found by Officer Joey Barnes and Sergeant Frank Kelly, who is actually the main character of uh, this film that you've made. This is among some of the eight sightings in just under a month that Knox describes in the 89 film. So let's discuss a little bit about the origins of this, what led you to do this. I understand part of that is that the guy who plays Batman in this, Guillermo uh, Mejia, I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, got himself a cosplay suit from the Cave Creature Creations company. Yeah, that's right. That's a, it's a company down in Colombia. And as I mentioned before, Guillermo is a, is a costumer here in the DC area and he and I've been friends for a long time. And he, uh, not that he has to consult with me about what his purchases are, but just one day he posts a picture online of him wearing this Batman suit. And Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking, Oh my, and I'm a photographer by heart. Mm -hmm. And I said, I got to get you over here to the house and let's do a photo shoot because I want to pretend like I'm Tim Burton for at least like five minutes, just come over, over turn the lights off and edge light you. And I just want to play with this suit. Did you shoot this, by the way? Say again, the movie? Did you shoot the oath? I did, yes. It looks fucking great, dude. I was like, this cinematography is fucking great. Oh, thank you, man. Yeah. Uh, I really, really appreciate that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it, it, uh, you can draw a straight line from this photo shoot um, you know, right into the film. I just wanted to kind of play on that mystery we talked about. You know, I wanted to maybe not focus on the Keaton-esque aspects of Batman, but let's just see if we can make Batman look as a criminal would see him, you know, terrifying, mm-hmm. scary. And, you know, it, it helped my purposes as a filmmaker because I didn't have to worry about, 
how much my Batman actor actually resembled Michael Keaton. You know, that gets thrown out the window because it doesn't matter. He's not, mm-hmm. Guillermo's not playing Michael Keaton. Guillermo is Batman, period. Mm-hmm. And that's really kind of the origin of the oath. You know, if we could make a film where Batman is this supernatural, dark apparition moving in the shadows that you can feel, even if you can't see him all the time. And, you know, the, the comparison I always made during filming was he was the shark in Jaws or he was Michael Myers in Halloween. It was always more interesting when he was just lurking. And the story um, from a criminal's point of view had already been told in the opening scene of Batman 89, where we hear the muggers, you know, Nick and Eddie mm-hmm. talking about the bat as if he's some urban legend. And I knew I wanted a piece of that in our film, but I thought, how cool would it be if we saw that same scene played out, but it wasn't too, you know, muggers talking about Batman. What if it was two cops and how do they feel about this Batman character? And, you know, obviously it kind of grew from there and, I wanted one character, which is Officer Joey Barnes, to kind of be uh, optimistic about Batman. And he's excited by him. And uh, then the other cop, who is Sergeant Frank Kelly, is the the older, gruffer guy who, you know, who says, no, there is no bat. Because if there is, he would have to go deal with him. And he's just another vigilante if there is one. And he's clearly breaking the law. But mm-hmm. the younger cop, Joey Barnes, I really wanted that youthful, idealistic um opinion about how cool would it be if Batman was actually out there terrorizing criminals? Like there's something cool about that. And actually the, uh, the notes I gave to that actor, I said, picture your, your character's apartment. He's probably got a wall. That's nothing but maps of all the Alexander Knox Batman sightings that have Mm -hmm. happened over the last month. Like he's, he's doing the same stuff in his apartment on a map as what Alexander Knox is doing in the Gotham globe and trying to figure out who Batman is and how he operates and what he's doing. And, and Chris, the actor who plays Joey Barnes, got excited about that. See, I know exactly who. who <laughs> now. And, and of course, I just told Jerry to be gruff and and angry and and bitter. And he was pretty good at that. So. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of the um, the Joey Barnes character is kind of the the fan inside the the movie. If there's like a real life fanboy, it's it's sort of in there, uh, you know, with what little they know about him so far. Right. Right. And the Johnny Gobbs thing was a great opportunity. Like I love, I love Batman 89 a lot. And I knew going into this, it was going to be a prequel. I knew right away. I'm like, I'm not sure what's going to happen, but I know it's going to be set on the night Johnny Gobbs died. I know that for sure. <laughs> I definitely appreciate it as well. Like the ambiguity I was describing is still kind of there. We're like, we still don't really know what happened because you find the body. So like, who knows? Right. Uh, that's still left once again as a mystery. Uh, have some other uh, oh this is a bit of a a jump but uh, before we go into the break I also wanted to uh, shout out to the costuming on this there was a lot uh, done to make sure that the look of the GCPD cops were authentic in this uh, which you know it definitely does on this if we look side by side with this and the original Bob Ringwood concept art design that you sent me. Yeah, this was a, that was a great morning. Um, I woke up and had a, a message on Facebook from Bob Ringwood. And I can tell you about that in a second, but that was a great, a great day. Um, but the, you'll, and you see how much the costumes actually change from Bob's original design, which is over on the right. That's a lot more futuristic. There's a lot more, mm. you know, extra panels, even the fur collars, which Bob actually said they created those fur collars uh, oh. for Batman 89. They just didn't use them in production okay. They decided to go without them. But um yeah, we, we spent a lot of time on those cop costumes, mostly because of the, the bat suit. Um, it was ready made, you know, it was bought off the shelf from the cave creature workshop. 
and uh, the cop costumes, we had to go all in and just start from scratch. And we just worked our way up. We found a, um, a leather jacket supplier in the UK and we went through two or three different versions of the jacket until I found one I liked because I was being a bit of a perfectionist about that. Um, but it was important to the movie. But we yeah. went through about three different coat suppliers until I found the one that Jerry's wearing there. And I had that thought, wow, these are coming from the UK. I wonder if we accidentally stumbled on the uh, the supplier of uh, Batman 89, which was filmed <laughs> in, in Pinewood in the UK. And, and when I got to talking to Bob Ringwood, he actually mentioned, no, we, we actually handmade uh, or at least made every single garment for Batman 89, which you look at all the cops in the last scene when the bat signal fires off. I mean, that's a lot of Gotham police officers. Mm. And uh, I can't even, now that I've been through uh, making a couple of these Gotham cop coats uh, and the whole suit, I can't imagine outfitting like 40 of them, but, but uh, yeah, we, we actually had the badges custom made. Um, It says Gotham city police on the badge, which actually the 89 badges didn't even say that they just said police. They were kind of generic. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the this is super nerdy stuff, guys. But the that's uh, cool. No, give it the, to us. <laughs> the uh, the hat in '89. Uh, the hat was actually wrapped in the same leather to match the coat. That was kind of a bridge too far for us on an indie film budget. So we had uh, off the shelf uh, hats that are fabric and they're not leather. The patch you see on Jerry's uh, right sleeve. That's kind of a, a basically a really close replica of the patches. The police department patches made for '89. Uh, we had a guy here in Virginia, Patchazar, who makes uh, he customizes in small orders of, of unique patches, and he's already put a disclaimer out there on online. He got swamped after the oath came out because a lot of people wanted that Gotham Police patch. Oh right, he, man! He only made two of them for it. Maybe, maybe I've got an extra one in a box, but he only made two or three of them, and uh, he had to put a a statement out and says, guys, appreciate the support. The movie's awesome, but we don't offer those patches. It was just for the film. <laughs> he was he was getting beat up, and then oh uh, man. Yeah, and the each of those costumes basically cost probably around twelve hundred bucks each, and we needed two of them. And again, we don't have a Hollywood budget. This is an indie film, mm-hmm. and every every dollar you know counts. And uh, a couple of the ideas for maybe some future stories, I'm kind of having nightmares at night because you know they might involve dozens of Gotham cops in a police. <laughs> <laughs> and that keeps me up at night because I don't know how we're going to afford that. But, but uh, And real, real quick, I'll, I'll circle back to Bob Ringwood. Um, he and I belong to a, a, a common Facebook group. And I just posted one night about our Gotham coats that we used for the oath. And I woke up the next morning and here's a message from Bob Ringwood, you know, sharing this image of his original concept design. Mm-hmm. I'd never seen before. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that, the yellow uh, we, I think we might have put this in our concept art episode. Have you, it looks I, it looks familiar. I had never seen it. So when I woke up to that message from Bob with this, I mean, my jaw dropped because I, I love the art too. It's gorgeous. And then he uh, he went on a little bit more uh, and answered some questions I had. But that was that was a great thing to wake up to. Um, and that just happened a couple months ago when we were in post production, actually. But yeah, a lot of a lot of effort went into those uh, cop costumes. I hope it translated. Oh yeah. No, it, it looks like the GCPD from 89, as well as just like the attention to detail that you described is really just like it. It just shows how much of the labor of love it was for this world and and for filmmaking and, and also your talent as well. So like it's it's uh, I'm glad, you know, please share as much nerd shit as you can about the behind the scenes yeah. stuff, because that's what we want to hear. Thanks, man. And I got I got to shout out our wardrobe team too. Uh, John mm-hmm. Broughton is our wardrobe lead. He did a lot of modifications to those coats. He actually added the epaulets, 
Uh, the coat didn't come with it. He moved some buttons around, and then I think he tapered the sleeves uh, so the gloves could fit on better. And he did a lot of tailoring to Oz's uh, suit and uh, uh, Bell Bredehoff also. But those guys and Keith Mandeville, those guys did a lot of work uh, wardrobing on everything but the bat suit. Uh, There's mm-hmm. still a lot of wardrobing in this. Everybody, everybody's attention and, and discussion always kind of goes toward the bat suit, but reality is that was only one costume out of all the rest of these. And just a big mm-hmm. shout out to our, our wardrobe team. They they killed it. Nice, they did. Yeah, awesome. Well, if we haven't hyped the oath enough. Here's your chance, guys. We're going to take a quick break. You guys can check out the oath. And then when you come back, we'll go all into spoiler territory, all into all the different Easter eggs, the stuff that might not have made into the movie. All that stuff Johnny will share with us after the break. Just wanted to announce that I have a new podcast called Gaming Gaiden. It's about Japanese to English translation. In this first season, it will be 10 episodes each season. If you saw the ranking, every Superman video game two-parter we did here on Superhero Stuff You Should Know, you have seen Mike before. So yes, if you like video games, if you've been interested in Japanese ever, we're going to be talking a lot about just Japan in general. Japanese cultural differences as well and we also are going to have a lot of talk about 90s video game magazines such as Electronic Gaming Monthly aka EGM so stay tuned for Gaming Gaiden Podcast it's already out now y'all I want to tell you about the Patreon.com Patreon.com slash Superhero Stuff Pod and on that you get the $1 tier uh, you can join the $1 tier, which gets you the shout-out on the board, and either visually or orally, or both at times. Uh, <laughs> we want to do the oral uh, for the most part uh, for newer people. Uh, and then the $5 tier gets you a whole new show. Uh, this show is every Monday, as you well know, and it's free on YouTube and the What's Nots. And... Um, <laughs> The uh, Patreon show is every Friday at the $5 tier mark. You can, if you want, binge us for five Mm -hmm. bucks. And uh, there's like 150 episodes, uh, almost 150 at this point. And you can, uh, you know, listen to all that content there. Even the stuff that's been released from the vault, none of that has been the full episode as well. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) trying to keep our uh, $5 tier people happy. (laughs) So... um, (laughs) So, but yeah, check that out. And then our $10 tier gets you all of the above. Plus, a uh, it gets you a monthly meetup show where you meet up with us monthly. And it's like a Zoom-like call. And we have a topic at hand or sometimes videos we react to and things like that. And that's at the $10 tier. Um, every tier that you get, like the $5 tier, gets you the $1 tier benefits and the $10 tier gets you the $5 tier benefits and the $1 tier benefits. So mm-hmm. check that out at patreon.com slash superhero stuff pod. We also got the merch, which is Redbubble, superhousepod.redbubble.com and on Threadless, superhero stuff pod.threadless.com. Get your Ben Man and Indeed Wizard mug, shirt, shower curtains, and all the rest artwork by Stephen Santa Cruz. And please send us some audio at superhousepodcast at gmail.com. A bumper would be great. Mm-hmm. You too can be part of the show. I'm Thunderwolf Drew on Instagram and Twitter. Thunderwolf lives as my other YouTube channel, one of my many YouTube channels. And I have uh, also thunderwolfdrew.com. Has my whole portfolio in one place except for amanorecon.com. 
That's A-M-A-N-O-R-E-C-O-N.com. And that is uh, an original idea that some friends and I are doing where it is R-rated um, Power Rangers meets Stranger Things. That's the quick pitch. And it is not a fan film, original idea. We have a pitch video right now on YouTube and on the Indiegogo page. We're campaigning right now as of this, uh, when this episode premieres. And this poster art is by Zachary Jackson Brown Art.com. And check it out. Please support us on the campaign. And more from that soon. Um, but yes, it's uh, it's bloody. And um, if you like that kind of thing, check us out. And that's it, Ben. Follow us on social media on Twitter at Superhouse Pod, Instagram Superhero Stuff Pod, where we have some different supplemental stuff. We even I've even analyzed the martial arts stance that the Keaton ornament from the Flash is in. So you can check that out on our Instagram Superhero Stuff Pod. Uh, TikTok Superhero Stuff Pod, Vero Superhero Stuff Pod. My website is benwanwriter.com where you can read a whole bunch of spec scripts, including Gotham, Vampire, Elementary, The Death of Sherlock Holmes, and Curb Your Enthusiasm, Disneyland. If you're fans of any of those shows, check them out and let us know what you think. My YouTube channel is in the description below, including Doctor Who, The Ronin of Time, an audio drama I write, edit, and narrate with the eighth Doctor, meaning Miyamoto Musashi. My personal Instagram is BenWanRider. If you like cats, my son, Alfie, my cat, is at Alfie Pennyworth Cat. And if you have an Alfie yourself, then you can get the Whisker Box, the only cat box with a crazy cat lady and gent. And you can even check out another page on that website, SuperheroStuffPod.com slash show notes. That includes uh, various show notes for each of our episodes links to the scripts that we review if they're available online amazon links to the stuff we've been talking about including you know brian levant's book that he plugged for us my life and toys so check that out at superherostuffpod.com slash show notes lord have mercy y'all do you like hounds do you enjoy pooches do you find yourself enjoying time spent with that of canines talking about dogs y'all as you might have heard Superhero Stuff You Should Know has now teamed up with BarkBox. For every month, you get a box for your special canine. Pooches. Or hounds. That's right. One free extra month if you go to BarkBox.com slash Superhero Stuff Pod. Follow the link and you'll get a free extra month valued at $35 and valid for all multi-length plans. So get the BarkBox for your hound, for your pooch, for your canine. Your doggo will thank you. <laughs> All right, you've seen the oath. Now you're back with us. So let's talk spoilers. <laughs> this is what we've been trying to get to. So uh, let's see. Andrew's got the first question. Okay. So um, what inspired the story of the oath to be about Sergeant Kelly? Yeah, so... Now that you've seen the film, you know it's not a Batman movie. I spent two years marketing <laughs> this movie, a Batman fan film, and it's it's not about Batman. It's about Sergeant Kelly. The secret is out. Um, yeah, I mentioned before, like when I originally just wrote the treatment and just the idea for the film, it was all about Batman being kind of the killer in a slasher flick. That's how I envisioned it. Uh, a short film that I made prior to this was horror. I'm a horror fan. I love horror, and I. I like the idea of seeing Batman through the criminal's eyes and you could almost make that a horror film because Batman mm -hmm. is horrifying. Right. right. 
So when the, the original concept of the film was, you know, Kelly was just a corrupt cop. He was kind of a, I don't want to say a Lieutenant Eckhart clone, but he was, there were not many redeemable char- uh, characteristics about Kelly at all. And the, the thought of the movie was how cool would it be to see Batman just stalk this corrupt cop to the end of the movie and then give him what he deserves. And, you know, it sounds like a great idea. And visually, I can see how that would work. But when you actually flesh out the story, like nothing happens. You know, Batman just, you know, pursues this cop and then beats him up. And what does he do? Tie him up and leave him on the, you know, the steps of uh, City Hall. Like the story really didn't go anywhere. And, uh, you know, I kind of went back and made a second, third pass at it. And then we started getting into moral ambiguity about, well, how would Batman react to a cop if tonight was his first night ever taking a bribe? Hmm. Does Michael Keaton, and I'm specifically talking about Keaton's Batman because there's so many Batman, as you know, but how would Keaton handle uh, a cop who's getting ready to turn bad? And he does take the money. You know, it's not like he he second guesses himself at the end. No, he takes it. He mm-hmm. takes cash and uh, then Batman springs into action. But we had a lot of conversations on the back end about the moral ambiguity and how uh, Keaton would react to that. And there were a lot of pretty interesting uh, conversations. The answer is no one knows. It's all just our best guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but the side that I landed on and it helped that I was the director of the movie <laughs> that helps. But the side that I landed on was that, you know, Batman is the world's greatest detective. Right. So he's got a brain. He's going to think things through. And if in a, you know, you're in a city where you don't have many allies and good cops are few and far between, my hunch is Bruce, uh, you know, may give this guy a second chance. And mm-hmm. it's not really talked about in the film, but the idea is that Batman has basically eavesdropped the entire film. So he's heard the opening scene, you yeah, know, with yeah. the discussion about the wife, you know, and he's heard he's heard everything that's happened. There's no real great way to show that in a short film without just showing Batman listening a lot. But uh, the idea is that, you know, Bruce understood why the cop was doing this and he basically wanted to scare the hell out of him. He wanted to scare him straight. You know, he wasn't going to, you know, get him off the street and then have one more problem to deal with as opposed to an ally. He just wanted to scare this guy straight. So that then kind of drove everything else that happened in the movie. It drove, uh, our fight scene such that it is because it's so short and so sweet. And I wanted it to be very, you know, a powerful moment in Sergeant Kelly's life where he would kind of get the message that that could have been him, you know, mm-hmm. and Batman, you know, spoiler alert guys, like Batman is a theatrical guy. And you know, I wanted Batman to really kind of pull out all the stops and put on a show that this cop has never really seen and, and do that quickly. And that's kind of, you know, where the fight came out of, but, um yeah that's uh that's that's kind of that in a nutshell is the oath a double entendre like it's batman's oath but also the cop's oath you know we are a month into this i think we're at two hundred thousand views i've done countless interviews and you are the very first person who's brought that up or asked that it is i leave that it is a double entendre in my opinion it's yeah. i leave it up to other folks um for me it is less about the oath that Batman is now expecting Sergeant Kelly to, to fulfill for me, it's about Sergeant Kelly's oath that he took when he became a Gotham city police officer. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's what yeah. it is to me. You know, just having some kind of backstage conversations with some of the actors and the folks behind the scenes, you know, some of those guys have talked about it and they talked about, Oh, so Kelly's kind of swearing an oath 
to Batman, you know, they're just going to stay on the straight path. And, <laughs> and, and to me, it's like, no, Kelly is remembering why he became mm-hmm. a cop 25 years ago. Right, right, right. It took a spark to really, yeah. you know, he was, he was going off on the bad path mm-hmm. and he just needed something to kind of give him some purpose and get back. So to me, that's, that's what that means. He had to see goodness again in some way, like true goodness in a tight spot, very tight spot. Yeah, yeah. And there's there's not much goodness in the Gotham City of Batman '89. There's not no. there's not much there. Yeah. No, everybody's corrupt. I think it also works in terms of the the kind of early anticipation for the film where it's just like it's a prequel to batman 89 it's called the oath and so the automatic assumption is the oath that bruce wayne took to you know basically war wage war on all criminals and that type of stuff and in a way this could also be an addressing that in a roundabout way of just like his war on criminals doesn't necessarily have to come down to his fists so much as keeping good men good right so i think there's definitely an emotional core to this that I appreciated, which is sort of what I was hinting at earlier, where it's just like the compassion of Batman's character is stuff that, you know, I think we've seen a little bit more in other interpretations is kind of like not necessarily given a lot of opportunity to show that in um, the stories of the Burton films. And so what I appreciated the most out of this was the fact that he knew the situation. He was able to sort of, as you said, scare him straight and uh, we sort of end on a more hopeful note than the alternative, which was, you know, the, the original version, as you described, where it's just like he just beats the shit out of this corrupt cop. And that's the end of, that's the, end of the story. Yeah. <laughs> no lessons learned. <laughs> but wounds are broken. <laughs> so, oh, uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's that poignancy that really elevates the, the material here that um, I don't think. You know, I don't think I I was expecting, or a lot of people who are watching it were expecting, because as you said, like it's it's kind of that uh, that surprise that it's not really about Batman at all. You know, it's not really the Bruce Wayne origin story. It is it is kind of the another way that Batman can be effective without resorting. I mean, he's still using violence, but not directly right. on the guy who is the main character of this. Right. Yeah, when I uh, when we we first started this, actually one of my own family members said uh, they found out I'm doing a Batman fan film, and they said, "John, what what could you possibly say about Batman that has not been said in 80 years?" And my answer was nothing, but (laughs) but I can say a lot about a guy named Sergeant Frank Kelly who Mm. has to live and and work in that world, and that's kind of what our story is about. But it, it was a it was a tough film to kind of promote and market. Um, a, because it's not an action film, it's a character drama. So you're already up against expectations there, you know, B, despite all the marketing material and the posters and all that stuff, that's got Batman all over it. Um, Mm -hmm. it's not a Batman film. It's a film that has Batman in it, you know? And and I would Mm -hmm. say that, you know, Jaws is not a movie about a shark. Jaws is a movie about a chief of police who's scared of the water. Mm -hmm. The shark just happens to be in it. And the shark is on the poster and the shark is on the the novelization and the calendar, but you know, it's, there's a lot of jaws, a lot of jaws parallels there, I think. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, So one of the cool things behind the scenes that uh, I found out about from, you know, discussions with you as well as sort of looking at your behind the scenes videos on the channel was the fact that uh, one of the consultants on this was Batman 89 movement double and former guest of our show, Carl Newman. So could you speak a little bit to, to that sort of uh, working relationship? 
Yeah, no, Carl is uh, just such a great guy. I'm, I'm just really happy to see Carl uh, kind of coming out and getting the recognition and credit uh, that, you know, he's deserved all these years. A lot of people, when they think of doubles, they immediately think of a stunt double or, you know, a riding double or some other type of double. And, you know, for those who don't know, uh, Carl, you know, was a professionally trained ballet dancer and he was a movement double and they brought him into Batman 89 when they needed, you know, Batman to have some poise and athleticism and grace and elegance and these things that ballet dancers can do. And uh, when we actually started production, I didn't know Carl. I got to know Carl uh, just virtually. He and I have never met face to face with him Mm -hmm. being in the UK, but uh, I got to know him as production was rapping for the oath. Uh, But our Batman actor who you see here in these three shots, that's uh, Guillermo. And someone had suggested to him, you know, Carl is actually really open uh, to talking to people about Batman or anything else for that matter. And uh, maybe you should uh, hit him up on Instagram and see if he's got any tips for you. And Guillermo said, yeah, I will do that. So Guillermo actually reached out direct to Carl and asked about, you know, hey, do you have any advice? I'm, I'm doing an independent film. I'll be in the bat suit. Do you have any advice about movement and that type of thing? And um, again, this is secondhand, but um, Guillermo said Carl came back and and just kind of instructed him to, you know, always be in the moment. Don't try to think three, four five steps ahead. Just concentrate on what you're doing right then, where your foot is landing right now. Um, it's a very small fraternity of people who have worn that Batman suit. Yeah. And and I'm not one of them. I've, I've never put on that thing. But I am given to understand that you have no peripheral vision. You can't hear in it. Um, Guillermo's, you know, the suits are all made slightly differently. But the suit that Guillermo's wearing here is actually the Batman Returns inspired suit. Mm-hmm. And that's that's 25 pounds of rubber on him. And it completely affects all his movements. Uh, We tried to rehearse the fight, you know, before uh, with the fight choreographer just to see how the suit would move and just kind of work through as much of that as we could in pre-production. So we didn't have any surprises when we were shooting out on the streets at three o'clock in the morning. And um, Guillermo, as he frequently reminds me, before we did the oath, I think the longest he had spent in the bat suit was like two or three hours. And then when we shot the oath, we shot his scenes back to back two nights in a row. And I think we had him in the suit like eight or nine hours each night. And uh, that's, that's a lot to ask. That's 25 pounds he's wearing and it gets yeah. heavier. It gets heavier as the night goes on, you know? Oh, sure. Yeah. I, I remember seeing in one of the videos, someone commenting being just like, but that's the Batman Returns suit. And I think um, it might've been your reply, but the, the channel's reply was that Bruce's in universe testing out the prototype uh, of this, uh, of what's going to be the, <laughs> the future version of this. And uh, I'll, I'll give you one more thing. Maybe he's testing the future version of it, but he's putting it on hold because he's waiting to develop that glider cape. There you go. Returns. Oh, oh, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I knew we would. Uh, I knew we would take some flack for that, but that's mm-hmm. the the reality is Guillermo's costume. Once he got it, and he prefers the return suit. That's just his choice, and that's the mm-hmm. suit that he he bought. And uh, that suit was the genesis of this entire film. So once we wrote the film and I wasn't budging on it being a prequel to 89, that was, it was going to be that no matter Mm -hmm. what. And I'm still looking at the suit and I'm thinking, well, you know, how many of my family members would really know the difference? Like (laughs) we know guys like us doing Batman podcasts. None of them would know, man. I don't think nobody would know. They look at that, but what they do know is they say, Oh, that's from the Tim Burton movies. And I, you know what? That's, that's good enough for me. And we didn't have the budget. I wasn't going to go back and buy a whole new 89 <laughs> suit just so Yermo, I can... return that and get another one. Please. Yeah. yeah. What'd you re- quick, dirty question about the shoot, but what'd you shoot on? 
So this initial photo, uh, the photo shoot you're looking at right here, that's actually a entry level. Uh, that's a Nikon D3000 or maybe a D3300, but it's a okay. DFR. It's, you know, not an expensive camera. Probably shot it on a 50 prime lens. I'm guessing at least the shot on the left we did. And yeah, that's actually the same camera that I shot my first uh, indie film with a few years before. And me and that little camera um, have a lot of history together. And it's just my go-to anytime I'm doing a, a quick shoot. It's my, uh, performs really well in low light. You know, the, you, well, what about for the oath though? What'd you shoot on the, for the oath? Yeah. The oath was a uh, black magic uh, 6k pro. Okay. And we're going to get nerdier here guys, but you finished in uh, with Da Vinci at color correction. My favorite, absolutely. My favorite piece of software on the planet, like DaVinci Resolve. And this is not a commercial. We are not sponsored by DaVinci Resolve. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. But <laughs> man, like they, I came from Sony Vegas and they streamlined that platform. And it is, I don't know if you use it, Andrew, but it is a godsend. It's my favorite I, piece of software. I mainly use Premiere, which is an editing software, not color correction. I know you can edit now in DaVinci, uh, but... Um, DaVinci was originally for color correction and that gets back again to your cinematography, which was just really great. And I think part, another good reason to bring this kind of nerdy stuff up is if anybody else out there wants to make something like this, there's the info, you know, you could, you could also rent, probably rent a black magic camera if you can't afford one. So, uh, if you kiddies out there want to recreate or do something in the vein of the oath, there you go. It's never been this easy. You can go to the University of YouTube. You can learn. Yes, yes. You can learn everything you need to know. Um, I'm not. I'm not knocking film school or anything, but I did not go to film school. But I've certainly learned a lot from YouTube over the last few years on my kind of short journey as a filmmaker. And there's just so much information out there. Yeah, there definitely is. Uh, also, was was the rain real? Uh, yes and no. It depends on the shot. Okay. So I was thinking that you had to ADR every line, right? We, some of it was salvageable. Um, <laughs> See, okay, there we go already. <laughs> we, we ADR'd. Here's the thing. We recorded the entire film in ADR after we wrapped. Uh-huh. Oh, because yeah. the sound, like the first scene in the alley with Johnny Gobbs, that tile fact, it was a tile factory. They're in there cutting ceramic tile. Oh, God, mm. yeah. And we, it didn't come up on our scouting trip. We shot there on a Thursday night and that factory is operational until like midnight on Thursday nights. So great. Great. Any other night of the week, we actually talked about flipping the schedule and trying to shoot there the next night when it would be quiet. But kind of the added bonus is the lights are on in that factory and they uh -huh. look great on camera. So it gave us some really cool, you know, lights and leading lines and things like that. The sound was terrible. So we re-recorded everything in ADR I put the ADR in and, you know, ADR is tough because you're asking your actors. And in our case, I think we were nine, maybe eight, nine months after filming. So oh, right. we're asking these guys to sit down. They were out in an alley with street noise and buses and crew and stuff happening. And now they're in a small room with a microphone and we're asking them to deliver the same intensity of their performance that they think they did on the street eight months before. ADR, yeah. ADR is tough like that. And I got the ADR, I put it in and it didn't feel right to me. So like sometimes I had to do 
grab a word here and there and just kind of really get into the audio and grab a line from ADR and mix it with what we got on set. But there was a lot of uh, background noise reduction going on to cancel out the tile factory. And then it uh, we ran into similar audio issues in the scene with Oz Keenum, who was our mobster. But yeah, we, we actually did ADR the entire film, but I didn't use all the ADR we, we recorded. Okay. Yeah. Like another thing for, for people out there, every single shot at a shot at a beach or something like that has been ADR'd at all of them ever. It's just because of the sound and the environment, you know, the wild sound or whatever. Anyway, back to the scheduled program. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I, you know, I wanted to cover that. I was, I was interested in that part. I, sure. I mean, I think for for those who aren't like well versed in like the filmmaking process, I think it's just enlightening to know how much is like involved. Where it's not just like, oh yeah, let me just take my phone and just film this guy, and then I'll show up exactly studio quality. Like, no, it's not <laughs> how it's gonna. It's gonna get to that point eventually, I feel like, but not just yet. I mean, with like the programs like Da Vinci and shit, you're gonna be put on the. Uh, the uh, Burton Gotham filter eventually, and you'll be set, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're not there yet, but give it five years. <laughs> I want that. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I'd want that too. We put that yeah. in every episode. Yeah, we would shoot this podcast in, in that filter, just a fucking like that painting that you had and everything behind. <laughs> uh, but uh, let's see. I don't, They'll, they're able to see it a little bit behind you, Johnny. But uh, oh, the Gotham painting about the Gotham painting, yeah, yeah. So that's it's hanging on the wall behind me. Um, yeah, I guess that's the big, the big spoiler here. I, I didn't really want that in the movie. I actually just wanted new artwork in here for this room. So no, that's not true. Um, yeah, I can relate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So no, we. Uh, I knew we were, you know, going to be paying a lot of homage to Batman '89. Um, that's actually the only reason our film has opening credits you know, which you typically wouldn't do for a short film. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted the opening credits. I wanted that score, which we can talk about in a minute, but I wanted all that to really set the stage for the rest of the movie and put people in the mood for, for 1989. So I contacted a, a good friend of mine named Joe Gransky, who is a portrait artist and he typically works in oil and he does, you know, portraits of you know people's wedding days or their pets. He does a lot of stuff for uh, comic cons and like the cosplay community. So if you've ever seen like a really good, oil painting of a costumer, you know, as Harley Quinn or as, you know, uh, Batgirl or something, it might be Joe's painting because he does a lot of business with that. Mm-hmm. And Joe is a, a huge Batman fan, like enormous. He's a, he's actually has a credit in the film as a story consultant as well. Cause he and I got to talking quite a bit about uh, Bruce, Bruce's moral ambiguity and his tolerance for that. Uh, but anyway, I asked Joe, I said, I want to do an homage to the uh, Brian Bishop scenic painting that opened up Batman 89. Uh, I said, I don't want to just rip that off. I said, I, I want a view of the city that we're all familiar with, but just from a slightly different perspective, you know, give me a view of that same skyline about a half mile down the river. And what does it look like from there? So I wanted it to really be our own. And of course, Joe was like, yeah, I'm going to love that. <laughs> so he, um, he cranked out a test painting first, which is what you're looking at here. This is the original prototype. This was just to look at, you know, how the kind of the, the haze or the mist at the bottom is going to look on camera, the, the color temperature of the lights in the buildings versus the moonlight. And this was a small piece. I think it's 16 by 20, it says here. And this was his uh, first prototype. And we learned a lot from this. 
And we actually ended up putting this up on our uh, Indiegogo uh, crowdfunder and it, mm-hmm. somebody nabbed it in like an hour. So um, <laughs> some, some lucky fan got this one. And then mm-hmm. he took the lessons from this and he created the actual production painting that's hanging behind me on the wall, which I think is maybe 24 by 36, maybe. And uh, that's the one that ended up going in to the film itself. Uh, a lot of digital enhancement, you know, after the fact. Uh, that's just kind of me um, working on it in post. Uh, it was in DaVinci. Andrew, by the way, it's not only an editor and a, and a color grading software. It's also you can do a lot of After Effects and future. Really? They have that in there, too? I got to get this DaVinci. They've got Fairlight. I swear. Yes, this, is not, this is not a commercial for DaVinci. I, <laughs> I uh, got to get that DaVinci. You do. You do. Check the link in the comments for a discount code. Or something. Yeah. Actually, we, we don't have it yet, but yeah, it's it's maybe after this episode. Yeah. Maybe. But we, we went in and I think we added like 250 street lights, like digitally onto those streets. And we, you know, put lights up on the bridges and we, the, the goal was, you know, to put some traffic in there and some moving mm-hmm. cars and a lot of this, but reality is we were just, the clock was ticking, you know, that was very late in the process. We needed to get the thing done. And one of the hardest things about creating art is knowing when to call it done. Because if, oh, you, yeah. don't, if you don't do that, you will continue to try to perfect it for the rest of your life and you won't, ever finish anything so there's, there's a phrase i heard that relates to this uh good art is never finished it's only abandoned that's exactly right mm-hmm. <laughs> yep for yep. real but joe, joe did a killer job on that painting and now i've got new wall art so <laughs> i think that also sets the tone too for it the, both the opening credits but also that shot because you know if you were lazy about this johnny you could have just used the shot from 89 <laughs> but i think because no. it's that it's just it's just like oh yes this is going to be something special because of the amount of love that's there to replicate not reuse and copy but to to replicate and give you that feeling from a different perspective yeah um, and then of course you mentioned the uh, the opening theme from um uh is it francesco francesco de andrea yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, an amazing composer. Uh, we actually had three composers uh, work on the oath. Uh, Francesco's music was was who we used the most. But uh, yeah, he's an Italian composer. He's actually in France. And uh, we actually licensed a lot of his tracks for me to edit to. Uh, I love to edit to music. It just kind of gives me, you know, the urgency and the, the beat and the rhythm that I need. And nine times out of 10, like the temp tracks that I'm using, during the editing process, nine times out of 10, that's what's going to end up in the final film. <laughs> I get so used to hearing it. And if you try to put something else in, I just never like it as much as, as what I first heard. So mm-hmm. uh, we license a lot of Francesco's tracks, uh, March of the Giants, which is the the opening theme to the oath and the closing theme to the oath, because I love it so much. Um, mm-hmm. The first time I heard that, I thought, man, like if you were to ask somebody to create a you know, alternate dimension score to Batman 89 that doesn't sound like the Batman theme, but yet it calls back to it and it has its own vibe. Like that's the song. Mm -hmm. And when I heard that, I'm like, well, that's, that's done. That's it. Like the, the opening credits to the film were done like probably six months before we actually started shooting. (laughs) (laughs) I I just knew that was going to be the opening. And uh, as I got to get to work with Francesco and get to know him more, we actually did, uh, commissioned him to score uh, the fight scene. So he did write some original music for the oath, specifically the fight theme. And uh, he got that over to us. And and then the other composers I got to mention are Jordan Hatfield and uh, Jacob Pietras, who is in Poland, actually. So you look at the, the bat suit, you know, made in Colombia, 
you know, some consultation from Carl Newman in the UK, composers in France and uh, and Poland. And then we shot the thing here in Virginia. And some of our producers are in Chile and South America. So, I mean, it's really a, you know, it's as much as I like to think this is a little backyard Batman fan film project. It really is kind of a, a network of folks all around the world coming together to to make this thing. So just big shout out to all those guys. Yep. I mean, it takes a village. It does. It's an international production. International village. Yeah. The UN. So yeah. let's go into some of the uh, Easter eggs that I'm kind of dying to go into. Uh, you sent me a whole list, uh, Johnny. I got uh, our assistant, Dan, to sort of uh, help us with some of the comparison stuff on it. So take it away. Nice. So this is a no brainer. Um, we've, we've put out several short films. This is the only one where we decided to start our logo, uh, the Chaotica logo on a blue cloudy sky. And obviously we did that to give Warner brothers one more reason to shut us down. <laughs> we dare you. <laughs> oh, I know. Let's do can, I push, can I push the line just a little bit further here? You can't trademark the clouds. I know, I know but obviously this is uh, slightly different clouds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is the only film that our logo has ever appeared on a, a cloud. Uh, cloud <laughs> uh, we typically don't do that. It's normally like a boring black screen. But uh, obviously, you know, you guys know the vibe we were trying to capture. And we started that uh, right when the music kicks up. And that's when our you see our logo instead of Warner Brothers. And once the music kicks up, those clouds fade away into a kind of a smoky blue darkness. And, and really our homage uh, to Batman 89 started right there with our own uh, film studio logo. Awesome. Nice. All right. Next. Uh, well, there's a few more before we get into this one. Right. But um, you were telling me about how obviously there's the Johnny Gobb stuff. Uh, as well as some like Easter eggs and some of the names. So like first and Pratt streets uh, being homages to Anton first and Roger Pratt, who is. Oh, the yeah. Director yeah. Of photography. Yeah. Yeah. The, for the uh, police dispatcher there in the first scene uh, mm -hmm. reports it. Jimmy Atlas is spotted on the corner of first and Pratt. And I, th I thought that was actually pretty cool because when you hear it, you just assume first is a number like first street. Oh yeah. You don't assume oh, it's right. You don't assume it's F U R S T as in Anton first street. So that was uh, kind of one of our first Easter eggs uh, was he's at the corner of first and Pratt. So Pratt is uh, named after Roger Pratt, who was the uh, director of photography for Batman. Uh, there's another guy that I would love to, you know, be able to just kind of talk to. He also shot a couple of the Harry Potter films as oh, well. Wow. Yeah. But Roger Pratt and uh, Anton first, that's where we got first and uh, first in Pratt. Yep. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, that, that was also something that had occurred to me when watching it, when I think it was mentioned first in Pratt. And since I'm already in the 89 headspace, I'm thinking, oh, that's a nice Anton first thing. I forgot about the first as the number, you know, yep. the first logical step, somebody who's not. You're just thinking of Anton only. <laughs> You're like, if, if somebody just said on first street in general, I wouldn't think Anton first is mainly because watching this and I'm like, okay, we're in the world. Right, I'm, glad, right, I guess. I'm glad that landed like it did then. It was uh, <laughs> that was from the, the very first draft of the screenplay. It was that line was written as, you know, first street F U R S T. Perfect. Nice. Awesome. Uh, then we have this wanted poster of Jimmy Atlas, but uh, you noted to me some of the um, fine print stuff I did not catch until you pointed these out to me, Johnny. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's always amazing to me. Our YouTube guys, you know, the, the mm -hmm. commenters on YouTube, it's always amazing to me what they catch and, and what they don't. And some mm -hmm. of them, this one. So we got uh, under Jimmy Atlas, we got associates, Carl Grissom, Jack Napier, but also Sophia Falcone. So uh, that hints at a Falcone 
existing in the Burton verse, and uh, you might be uh, happy about what you read sometime in the comic. Is all I'm going to say, Johnny. Oh, good. <laughs> so, uh, uh, moving further, we also have um, we have a flyer uh, of the anniversary celebration as well as the Harvey Dent uh, campaign over here. Uh, so that's, that was cool. And uh, I think one of the more obvious ones as well is the back fist, the Keaton back fist oh, without yeah. looking. You, uh, see, you see how Guillermo, Guillermo's on the left, obviously. You see how he's uh, he's cheating a little bit. He's trying his best to look at Oz. You see that? <laughs> so tell us the story about, about this because I think you mentioned to me what happened here and it sounds pretty funny. I'll tell you why he's cheating a little bit because <laughs> Probably the take before this or two takes before this, he cracked Oz right in the face with that back. The, oh. There was a, there was not a lot of movie magic going on where your actors are actually <laughs> three feet away from the fist. It was, it was uh, well, I'll start from the beginning. Our fight choreographer, Jason White, who's a, he's a great guy. He's a martial artist. He and I met, we were uh, uh, working on the set of the walking dead world beyond. And he and I got to know each other then. And he's a great fight choreographer and we brought him on. He's a big Batman fan. He's an artist. And we brought him on to do uh, some fight choreography with us. And he talked me and Guillermo out of doing the bat fist in pre-production because we both wanted to, we wanted that nod back to Keaton. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jason was just like, you, you shouldn't do that because Guillermo can't hear. He has no peripheral vision and he's going to crack Oz in the face. And it's going to, you know, potentially obviously, you know, harm Oz, but it's also going to slow your production down because he's going to have a nosebleed for the next hour and all this stuff. And we said, you know what? Cooler heads prevailed. You know, Jason, you're right. Um, Jason didn't come with us to set. Our, uh -huh. our filming location was about a hundred miles away. Jason wasn't there and we're shooting the fight. And I looked at Guillermo and there was actually something that we had in there that wasn't working and I didn't like it. And I looked at Guillermo and he looked at me and I said, how do you feel about the bat fist? And he said, bat fist is back in. So we put the bat fist in. We did, we did a bunch of takes of it. We told Oz, Oz plays the mobster there, Jimmy Atlas. We told Oz, we said, this is going to be on you um, to manage your distance between your face and that fist. So just, you know, keep track. We rehearsed the bunch, but don't come too close to it because Guillermo really doesn't have much control over where that fist is going to fly. And Oz says, yep, I got it. So we did a few takes. And then one of those, Oz got too close to it got the bat fist right in the nose. I mean, he was okay. Nothing, nothing severe, but uh, we, it's a great blooper. Like it's a classic blooper. And the, uh, <laughs> the sound effect, cause we obviously had the mics rolling and all that. And the sound of that fist hitting Oz in the face, like there was no post-production needed on that noise. It was just a wham, just a wham. <laughs> you know, so we didn't use the take in the, in the film. But uh, well, you use the sound from that tape. We use the sound, I think. I think <laughs> yes. Uh, and we do have some. Uh, we actually have a behind the scenes feature uh, coming out on our on the Chaotica Studios YouTube channel. That's just about um, Oz getting cracked in the face. So we, we, we <laughs> talked about it for like three minutes. But yeah, that's that's why you see William kind of or Guillermo. I call him William sometimes. Guillermo's cheating a little bit to make sure he doesn't mm -hmm. hit Oz again in the face. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm curious how many times. Um, I guess, I mean, it looks like it's Keaton. It might be Dave Lee here in the actual movie. Like if he actually ended up hitting the stuntman in this shot in 89, I'd love to hear the story behind that. But uh, I mean, that's, you got to have that in. And I'm glad that you guys ended up saying like, you know what, let's do it. And Oz sacrificed yeah. his face for a second. It got a, uh, it got a real good applause at the premiere. We had a private screening premiere in a movie theater. Mm -hmm. 
And nice. I will tell you that the uh, the bat fist got a uh, it got the desired uh, result. <laughs> <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice desired reaction. So yeah, no that that part was awesome. Uh, other Easter eggs we have here: the uh, the Vogue magazine uh, is clearly the uh, same one from '89. Oh my God! So was this an eBay purchase? Sorry, Ben, I cut you off. That's what you were going to ask, though. And I'm curious. I was curious how how did you like make this magazine? Yeah, we guerrilla film made this one. Uh, you can get that magazine. It actually is a, a real Vogue magazine from the '70s. So like Jerry Hall, obviously, is a, a beautiful model. Mm-hmm. And I, you guys might have covered this in one of your other shows. Uh, but Jerry Hall is, you know, just a gorgeous model. And she was on the cover of Vogue magazine back in the 70s. And it was that magazine. And they just used it for Batman 89 and put Jack Napier's shoes on it. And, you know, there was a lot of conversation that we had uh, pre-production about, OK, wait, is that magazine one of a kind? Is it kind of Jerry Hall's uh, or Alicia? Is it her prized possession because she's on the cover? Or is that a current magazine that you could like go out and buy it on the newsstand right then in Batman 89? So we had a lot of conversations about whether that was a trophy or whether that was a magazine that anybody could go out and buy. And I looked at it from, well, it's a prop. I want to do another callback to 89. Something (laughs) that fans will get. So I'm going to say that those magazines are being sold by the hundreds right now down at the five and dime shop. So the magazine made it in. Um, I've not received a cease and desist from Vogue magazine yet. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm hoping if Warner Brothers doesn't shut me down, uh, Vogue magazine won't. But Mm -hmm. uh, and to answer your question, that's uh, you can get that magazine on eBay. I just do not want to pay those prices for it. Yeah, Uh, probably I'm bidding against other Batman collectors, too, I'm sure. But uh, (laughs) we uh, we actually got that image. I think we printed off a glossy eight and a half by 11 or something, trimmed it down to size and actually stapled it onto like a, I don't know if it's like a field and stream or some other type of magazine. (laughs) (laughs) The the pictures, uh, the pictures inside are not going to match what's on the cover. It's a, it's a thrasher. (laughs) (laughs) That does bring up a good point. I wonder how many hardcore 89 fans are buying, you know, spending hundreds on eBay on this issue just so they can put their feet on it on their coffee table. Why is this issue so goddamn popular? (laughs) We've only had, uh, out of all the YouTube comments that we've gotten with, like mm-hmm. I said, like 200,000 views and a bunch of hundreds of comments, like I think only one person has commented on the Vogue magazine. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Still, it's it's a great detail. And also, it, it hadn't occurred to me until you just talked about it that like, oh, yeah, like if it's from the 70s, of course, it's not going to look this new. Of course, you would have to do something to it uh, or recreate in some way for it to look like a magazine fresh off the rack. So that's just right. It's another testament to just the, the labor of love. I think I would, I would assume in this world, this is just a new magazine for that month. That's, that's just what I would think of it. That's what that's one of the other guys said too. He said, if, um, cause I think her, you know, her apartment or Carl Grissom's apartment, I mean, it's just loaded with pictures of her. Right. So yeah. if, this was a, if this was a prized possession from 10 years before, like it would probably be framed and up on the wall. Not yeah. just sitting on the coffee table, right? So, yeah, yeah like exactly. One. I mean, there's a lot of time. You know, they mix a lot of time times up anyway, right? With all the Art Deco stuff, and the you wouldn't there wasn't that much Art Deco in the '80s. I mean, come on, we're we're, we're really playing with time here. Yeah, right. for sure. Uh, we also had some audio Easter eggs as well in terms of streets. Another one was. Um, well, uh, one was not an audio. It's the envelope that has Sergeant Kelly's address on Finger Street. Obviously, Bill Finger. 
but also in the audio, we hear from Peter McElroy, who's the anchorman from 89. Uh, so you had auditions for many voice actors for this, is what you told me. We did. Yeah. There's some great websites out there where you can, you know, audition voice actors without ever, you know, <laughs> meeting them. You know, voice mm -hmm. acting is a job you can do from anywhere on the planet. And uh, we put the uh, we uh, put the, the the announcement out there. I actually included a clip of uh, Peter McElroy from Batman 89. I said, this is the voice that we're trying to uh, emulate mm -hmm. and uh, ended up with a guy. I'm actually I'm forgetting his name. He's, he's credited. But um I think we auditioned more than 50 or we heard more than 50 different auditions. And one guy, I think he's in New York, just nailed it. You know, to me, it sounded just like Peter McElroy from mm -hmm. Batman. Uh, actually, funny Easter egg, before we went that route, we were actually going to show the TV during that last scene. And it wasn't going to be Peter McElroy as the anchorman delivering the action news update. It was actually going to be, was her name Becky, who uh, died? Oh, yeah. So mm -hmm. we actually, we had an actor lined up to play Becky. We were going to do the coat with the shoulder pads and the bob haircut. <laughs> oh, nice. we, actually, we actually had an actress lined up to play Becky. And at the last minute, I said, you know, that we don't really need to throw another face at the at the audience that late into the film. We can do this with VO and just mm -hmm. do, uh, you know, some audio. Right. So that's how we landed, on, we landed on Peter McElroy. And, uh, yeah, I'm proud of finding that guy. I think he sounds a lot like uh, this guy. Yeah, no, I, I love that little detail as well when I was listening to that part. Um, also, is the uh, there's Gotham Globe newspapers that have Alexander, Alexander Knox's name, of course, but also McPhee, who deep dive into the novelization. This is a hell of a deep cut, Johnny. McPhee is the name of the character in 89, according to the novelization, who says, well, well, Count Dracula to Knox when he walks in. <laughs> only feature in the novelization. That's the only time the name pops up. But... Uh, you glean that wow. from the novelization and put that in as an Easter egg in this one. So again, just goes to show how much love there is for the Burton verse in this. So uh, that's pretty awesome. And uh, one of my favorite details is coming up, which is uh, to you, the future of Sergeant Kelly after this movie is that he will walk in a week later into Access Chemicals with James Gordon and be the guy in between Gordon and Eckhart here. Right. Do I got the right guy? You got the I'm right. Sure you, yeah. you got you got to squint just a little bit and picture like, <laughs> picture a clean shaven, sober Sergeant Frank Kelly, who's uh, who's on the the up and up, and uh, you got to squint yeah. a little bit. But... <laughs> he's ready to fight justice. His wife is getting better. You know, he's he's cleaned himself up. He's finally get, had a chance to shave, and uh, he's he's ready ready to to help out. So, no, that's pretty awesome uh, on this. So. Uh, we have this, and then also I wanted to kind of go into some of the stuff that uh, was sort of altered. You said that uh, Becky was originally in this, but I also know that um, this little girl was almost <laughs> in this. This is the quote-unquote ragamuffin girl, as she's described in the script, uh, who gets saved by Batman in a deleted scene uh, from the Joker's goons, and she asks him, is it Halloween? And um, you shared with me that this girl, well, not not literally this actress, but this type of character was almost in it instead of the homeless man we saw in the movie. Yeah, that's right. Again, we were, you know, we knew certain things needed to happen in our story. So we would establish those in our script, but then we would say, okay, how can we make this come right out of Batman 89? So the idea with the bum uh, who's played by Mike Stumbo in our film, uh, the thought was, what if we made this someone we've already seen, you know, on the street. And the idea was about the bum, or even about this little girl, um, you know, apparently, you know, she's homeless and she's out living on the streets, making a, a life for herself, I guess. But 
the idea with the bum was, you know, maybe Batman actually, again, being the world's greatest detective, maybe he has a network of trusted agents, you know, who are out there, the eyes and ears of the street, you know, when Bruce Wayne can't be there. And that's kind of where the idea of the bum came from. And, and I thought for a second, man, wouldn't it be great if we could do the Easter egg and, and, you know, maybe bring the girl back and have something there, uh, at least uh, as an homage for people to be like, oh, there's the girl. Even if it wasn't, she wasn't delivering the same lines that Mike Stumbo ended up delivering. And, and I'm not saying she would get the money at the end or anything like that, but if she was just there, if we did, right. If she was just there, if we found a way Mm -hmm. to get her, you know, on camera um, and there's actually like, we're, we're separating the men from the boys here with some Batman 89 nerd them, but there's actually (laughs) um, at the start of the start of 89, when Batman's holding one of the muggers, you know, off the roof Mm -hmm. and it looks down and you see the, the alley below there's actually like a golden retriever that runs by. And again, we're separating men from boys here on oh, the man. So there's a golden retriever that runs by and you hear the audio in there with the dog barking. And I'm like, I got to get a golden retriever for our, our set. You know, I, gotta, <laughs> I just want to have him run by, you know? So, so the one guy on YouTube could be like, Hey man, I saw your golden retriever. That's awesome, man. But anyway, we didn't. Long story short, we That'd didn't get show. We didn't get the girl. We didn't get the. Uh, we didn't get the golden retriever. But we did get Mike Stumbo, who plays the bum, and uh, he did a great job, looking dingy and and dirty and tired and haggard at two in the morning. <laughs> so the uh, I, I love bookends though. I, yes. No, I think bookend stuff. You know, him in the beginning mm-hmm. and in the end is great. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I appreciated that. Uh, here's, I wanted to share this is Easter egg, uh, to you actually about Mike Stumbo's character. So, uh, when I was, when I grew up with Batman 89, I also like the companion piece to me, even though it's not really related was the comic, the untold legend of the Batman. Was that one that you, uh, were ever familiar with or grew up with? I never had that one as a kid. I had a lot of them, but that was one I did not have. So one thing I distinctly remember in issue three of that is that Batman does have a network, kind of like the Baker Street Irregulars for Sherlock Holmes, of homeless people who give him information. One of them is named Poet, who looks a lot like Mike Stumbo. (laughs) Wow. Oh, if I don't, if I had known that two years ago, like Stumbo's wardrobe would be completely different. <laughs> oh, that's great. A different like hat it. at the most. <laughs> but yeah, to me, I was watching that. I'm like, wait a minute. That's the guy from the Until Legend oh, of the Batman in my I, head. In my I, wish, head. I wish I could uh, bullshit you on that one and say, yep, that was the plant. Nope. That's new to me. That's awesome. <laughs> I love that. So yeah, no, just one little thing for you. Uh, and then the last thing I wanted to ask you in terms of stuff that didn't make it in was something that I discovered in, you know, a little document you sent me, which is that we almost got the ninja wheels that we did not get in the movie. So in the original Sam Ham script, Batman uses ninja wheels a fair amount of time. And then in the, uh, one of the behind the scenes documentary, we have this shot where the ninja wheels are actually part of the fucking door that is in the bat that the bat suit is housed in we did not get to see this in the movie but they were actually designed and made for the movie they just never showed up uh in the final film but you guys were considering actually bringing that into this yeah we were that was uh that was one of the things and and those ninja wheels are also pictured in the uh the old movie book as well it shows a lot oh, yeah. of the gear laid out on the table and the ninja wheels are there and you can tell they actually made them mm-hmm. and uh yeah i went to uh, a metalsmith and said, hey, here's the design. I said, I do want them to be metal. Um, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to endanger the lives of our cast and crew yet, but I, <laughs> but I know I want them to be metal, and I know I want to be able to like use them like a throwing star. If I throw them at a, a piece of wood, 
you know, the damn thing had better stick in there. That's the, mm-hmm. the idea. And the metalsmith was going back and forth. He's like, well, you know, it's going to probably be a lot more money than I expected it to be, to be honest. And I took another pass at the script and, you know, you guys have seen the oath. At, at what point is Batman going to be throwing a ninja? <laughs> Oz is already getting hit in the face. He's yeah, like, exactly. Oh, yeah. And it was, it was just, it was actually the ninja wheel was actually a really good like reminder for me in pre-production that like, Hey, remember, like stay centered here. Remember, remember what your story is. Remember what your story is not, you know, right, if, right, right. If yeah. I'm left, like, if I'm left unsupervised, like I would, <laughs> room would be like, it would be the Batcave command center. I would have consoles, you know, and I would, you know, I would have a Batmobile and I would show how the Batwing takes off, you know, and I'm just like, at some point, like I had to remind myself, this is Sergeant Frank Kelly's story. It's not about Ninja Wheels. Right. And so we, we cut the Ninja Wheels from the project, but I, I really wanted to show them because that's a cool piece of uh, 1989 history that uh, I thought we could show, but there's, you know, it's about the story, man. It's not about the Ninja Wheels. So. You got to save it for the oath too. So <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I also like the idea of it being kind of like, oh, he's like, he's come back from his training in Japan. And so like, he's used to this, but like he's evolving it into the batterings, you know, that type of, that type of aspect. But, um, you know, I think, I think the right Easter eggs won out. You know, there's an alternate reality where we don't get this movie because you're still waiting on the golden retriever and the ninja wheels and, and all this <laughs> other stuff. So thankfully, <laughs> thankfully the right things won out uh, on this. And uh, it's uh, it's had a hell of a reception. You've you've sent us these pictures of uh, the premiere as well. And the, and the fan response um, has been fantastic as far as I've seen. Yeah, it's uh, in all honesty, I've, I've actually expected to take a lot more flack uh, from Batman fans about this movie. <laughs> and I've really not gotten much on all the comments. Most of the comments, the vast majority have been incredibly positive. Uh, the people who really get the movie and get what it's about, um, they really get it. Like they're all in. They love the kind of the humanitarian stuff that you guys mentioned, that side of Bruce. They mm-hmm. love that it's not about Batman. They love that it is about a side character that is original, you know, for us in our story who has to live and work in this world. Uh, the, the guys who, the fans who really get that, like they love it. Um, the only really kind of negative comments that I've seen out there, are, you know, one guy actually compared us to Zack Snyder and basically said, you know, you need to, if you're going to, you know, compete with Zack Snyder, you know, your audience, you know, is going to expect a lot more action and stuff. And I'm just like, you know, I, I appreciate you watching our film. I didn't respond, but I just mm-hmm. said, you know, to myself, I said, I appreciate you taking the time to watch our film, but man, that was a point missed. The point flew right over that guy's head. I think so, <laughs> um, like, obviously you're going into the Burton verse anyway. Well, there's also kind and- of an interesting, weird compliment to that too. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, Andrew, but like, no, it's okay. Like, like basically say like, well, you're competing with Zack Snyder and you're, and you're like, dude, I'm, I'm a dude who went through Indiegogo for this film. Right. You know? like, we're not really trying to compete no. with that at all. No, absolutely. Right. We, we, we had a, we had a very small story to tell in the very dark corners of Gotham 89 that we all know and love. And, and, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's what we wanted to tell. You know, we never wanted to, this was not an action film with Batman and the Batmobile and the Batwing and the Batboat. And the- I contacted Boeing to see what we could do about a bat- Batwing. Yeah. <laughs> they said they'd get back to me. Yeah. but uh, He evolves the Batwing and flies overhead and he jumps out <laughs> to stop Jimmy Atlas. Hey, uh, is this Jimmy Boeing? Yeah, I'd like to. <laughs> I'd like a Batwing, please. 
What can you do for me? Indiegogo uh, didn't have the funds for us for that one. There's the bat wing tier. The bat wing tier. The uh, what do you call it? The add-on uh, perk or whatever it's called. <laughs> we disassemble it at the end, and you get a piece of the bat wing to take right. off you. Yeah. <laughs> But our premiere, like this, this was actually a surreal night. We had a packed house, and uh, it was it was really surreal to kind of see the product up on screen in a, with a group of people because I'd seen the movie, you know, several times a day for many, many, many months, and I, I got really close to it, and 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 by that I mean I got really like I was numb to it. I was numb to, you know, if the, the tones and the beats were still the same as I thought they were nine months ago. Like I was very numb to. Uh, the movie having worked with it so much and to finally like get it up there, show it on the big screen at a private screening for our premiere. Like that was a really cool way to see it and watch other people enjoy it, you know? And I sat in the back of the room and kind of creepily like watch people to make sure they're like laughing at the right time and make sure, you know, they're, they're into it and getting, you know, what I think they need to get out of it. But it was a really fun night. Great night for the actors too. Oh, I'm sure. That's awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, Johnny, thanks for joining us. Where, uh, you know, what's next for you and where can people find you? Yeah, we're actually, uh, we are right in the middle of production for a Star Trek fan film. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, so it's huge. We've actually got a uh, about a $40,000 budget through Indiegogo right now. Holy which is, crap. It's the, it's the largest, uh, the highest funded Star Trek fan production in the last six or seven years. And um, it's called Farragut Forward. It's actually a continuation of the long-running Starship Farragut uh, web series, which is one of the first and original Star Trek fan series uh, that started on YouTube back in 2005. Wow. That's the first year YouTube came out. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Check out Starship Farragut. It's, um, you know, they've been doing this stuff for a long time. I'm relatively new to the Farragut family. Uh, my company, Chaotica Studios, partnered with Farragut Films, and I, they brought me on to shoot and direct uh, Farragut Forward. And it's their first, their, their original web series was set in the 1960s Star Trek universe. And now we are making the jump to the Wrath of Khan era. So okay. they brought me in to kind of shoot and direct the Wrath of Khan era, which is much more kind of my style, the darker, <laughs> uh, more cinematic uh, mm -hmm. Wrath of Khan, Undiscovered Country, if you're, if you guys are Trekkies. Mm -hmm. So we are right in the middle of production for that. Our production schedule is actually about 14 months long. So we shot a lot in October. We're shooting in January. We're shooting in March. We're shooting in June. And then we're trying to get post wrapped up October through December. So it is, uh, it's a monumental task and we're still funding on Indiegogo for that. Check out Farragut Forward. And then you mentioned an Oath sequel. Um, you are not the first person to throw some ideas. And what I will throw out there is I've actually got two outlines for two more stories uh, at least one of those will still be a prequel to Batman 89 and the mm -hmm. jury is still out on the second story. I don't know how close I want to go to the returns timeline, but probably not very. Um, but just I'll throw that out there for you guys. We got a couple outlines. One is probably still pre Joker and the mm -hmm. other one is definitely post Joker, but probably pre returns and if i was a smart man i would kick off the crowdfunder for those right now but i'm not going to do that until i have a script <laughs> i'm going to wait till we have a script and then we'll do some crowdfunding for, for that road, so. appreciate that but uh thank you johnny for coming on yes and, thank you uh, with that that is superhero stuff you should know thanks guys awesome Big thanks to Dan for gathering the visuals for the YouTube experience. Dan will also be helping out 
for the Patreon deeper dive. So this week we will be sharing some deeper dive details we didn't go into about the Batman 89 Michael Keaton timeline, discussion on actors in the flashback scene of the Wayne murders, more art from Logan, some conflicting information across the scripts and novelizations of what exactly or when exactly Jack Napier killed Thomas and Martha Wayne. So check that out in the $5 Patreon tier for the deeper dive. Uh, in the meantime, we have a few fan comments starting of Douglas. Douglas is back. Douglas says, if someone prefers Batman fighting fantastical villains in a universe co-inhabited by other heroes, they will have James Gunn's DC. And if someone prefers grounded Batman, where he's the extraordinary amongst the ordinary, they have Matt Reeves and those who like both. Uh, I guess he means those who like both will get to have, uh, well, hold on. You have two different kinds of Batman at the same time. He's saying guns and Reeves at the same time. Right. Yes, yes. So, yeah, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of balls in the air. There's a lot of things that we we don't know yet about uh, this upcoming James Gunn universe. Maybe by the time between this recording and and when uh, this actually gets out, there'll be more announcements. But uh, you know, all I think we can say is that we just gotta wait and see and judge. And we're going to be a long. It's going to be a long period of waiting and seeing on stuff. So just hold tight. Don't uh, take everything of a grain of salt unless it's an actual announcement because we're in a hell. We're getting to the point where you can't even trust Hollywood Reporter and Variety or Deadline these days. Yeah, that's how chaotic DC is. It broke the trades. <laughs> so just just hold out until you actually go to the theater or see a trailer or, or even. Yeah, just something, some some sort of actual news, because right in now there's just way too much speculation. Just enjoy the DC films we're going to have this year. Mm hmm. You know, we're getting a Blue Beetle movie. Come on, that's going to be cool. I know it's not Batman, but, uh, you know, we're getting some good stuff. Aquaman 2, etc. So, uh, even though the continuity is going to end, let's just be happy with what we have. <laughs> until until this something actually gets greenlit 100%. Well, I'm, I'm sure it'll get greenlit. It's Batman, but, you know, until it gets more traction. Well, it's also what Yuslin said, I think, to us and to other podcasts, where you're just like, you can complain as much as you want, just until after, just wait until after the movie is actually out. Yes, yes, yes. So then you can complain. Yes. So, uh, but thank you, Douglas, for this. Uh, a couple other comments. One from Eric saying, awesome t-shirt, Ben. I'm surprised I am the only comment that noticed your shirt. You were not, actually. A quick change <laughs> Batman slash Bruce Wayne Kenner action figure shirt. Jack Wicknett Pagnum says, where'd you get the Kenner Bruce Wayne t-shirt? We've had several other comments about this. Uh, and uh, every now and then I respond in the, uh, when I can on YouTube, but the overall answer to that is red bubble, but the merchant I got it from is not around anymore, unfortunately. So probably got a cease and desist. <laughs> you probably lucked out. Yeah, I, I might have, but I'm sure there's going to be someone else on red bubble or T public who has, is going to do this variation of that, especially with the you know resurgence of the Michael Keaton Batman this year, uh, as well as with the comic, you know, of Joe Quinones putting that Easter egg in of Keaton's Bruce wearing the shirt. So uh, just be on the lookout, guys, uh, for that type of stuff. But uh, I'm, I'm glad I got what I got. <laughs> yeah, I did. In the nick of time. Indeed. Uh, last one is from Oliver Emeralds, uh, who DM'd us with an Easter egg he discovered in Arkham Asylum. Uh, so he said, I'll send the images. First one is Batman in the Arkham Asylum suit. Uh, but he says that after an explosive punch on Joker, he breaks his gauntlet and wrist. He uses his belt buckle and his black underwear 
the trunks uh, to make a splint. See, there is a point to the underwear on the outside, guys. My God, I've never even heard of that before. Has that even been done in the comics? Tact tactical underwear. <laughs> the reason why I wear this is something I have <laughs> built in. <laughs> There's a fucking reason for all of this shit. Or it's a tourniquet. Inclu <laughs> My undies are, t are tourniquets. Gordon gets shot and he's just like, hold on a second. Hold he, on a second. he takes his underwear off. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Trust Not me. what you would think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he says, you can see he is using a leathery material on his gauntlet. This is not a glitch as you... Uh, if you look at his crotch part, uh -huh, you can see two screw holes, which is seen throughout his suit. I screenshot this when he talks to Commissioner Gordon before he grapples into the Batwing at the end. Uh, thank you, Oliver Emeralds, for pointing this out, uh, this little story thing here, and uh, a fun <laughs> a fun use of the tactical trunks. That's awesome, actually. I, I mean, shit, if you're going to have the trunks, you might as well use them. <laughs> no, I don't know, but that's great. It is great. <laughs> I think recently there was a comic issue that's similar to the the unmade Batman animated show that we went over with Bobby 80s where Batman is like falling from space. And at one point, I think he uses the trunks to help like him breathe or something like that. I, I, oh, I haven't checked out the wow. issue. But uh, yeah, people are, are making use of the tactical trunks. I mean, I think the easiest thing is that it's some sort of, um, you know, in rock climbing, it's some sort of harness type of thing. You know, that would probably also be easy to to explain. But uh, if James Gunn's DC universe, if it is indeed a separate Batman from Pattinson and stuff, if, if we do get trunks and a tactical explanation, they will get the support of this podcast. Is he ever going to stab somebody in the eye with his ears? That's what I want to know. Or do the cape thing from Earth One. That's the, th that's the one that's most likely because, especially in movie uh, logic, Choking somebody out's not going to kill them, right? And in real life, it might. It might kill somebody if you choke somebody out the wrong way, obviously. I mean, but within the movie world, uh, you know, I think that's the most likely. Because him stabbing somebody in the eye, that's, that's taking somebody's eye out. So, like, that's probably not going to happen, but it's funny as hell. <laughs> you know? It would be, yeah. Pattinson just gets fed up and he just goes through the Dan over ah! his glasses. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a fucking um, Looney Tunes bull. Tactical ways to use the other parts of the bat suit. So. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Uh, over to the Patreon shout outs. Oh, man. 2023, y'all. You know, so we want to thank some of the newer people off the list. With, well, thanks to everybody for sure. But uh, the ones that get the uh, aural thank you will be today. Metageek, Chuck, ATWT, Chris, Chris R, Chris M, Darren F, Billy L, Yusuf A, Kevin R, Derek O, Renee V, and Tita, and the rest of our supporters as well. And we've told you about our friends, but now we'd like you to do us a favor. We want you to tell all your friends about us. Wow, that was a real weird intonation. Let me try that again. We want you to tell all your friends about us. Just going in. The whole thing. <laughs>